One of the most dangerous things that can happen to us with respect to our spiritual growth is to have a higher estimation of ourself than corresponds to reality. To think that we know more than we really do. To think that we love more than we really love. And to think that we're more mature in the faith than we really are. In some ways, the church at Corinth was the poster child church for what it means to be carnal in the ancient world. But in other ways, the church at Corinth, with all of its problems, was simply reflective of what is going on in the average church in any local congregation. Years ago, I asked Dwight Pentecost what he would teach if he was doing a new church plant. I expected him to say the Gospel of John or perhaps selected Psalms, something like that, maybe the book of Colossians, but he didn't. He responded immediately, I would teach First and Second Corinthians. Really? I said to him, I couldn't believe that. Especially when, it, when you consider all the controversial issues in First and Second Corinthians and the difficult passages, some of the difficult exegesis there. You would teach that, I asked him? And he said, yeah, I would. And I said, well, why? And he said that the problems that are present in Corinth are present in every church to a greater or lesser degree. In a sense, he said, Corinth is every church. Now, we might like to hear that, but I think he had a point. In the chapters we've recently been studying in 1 Corinthians, Paul is asserting that many in Corinth may have been knowledgeable about the Word of God, but they were not as knowledgeable as they thought they were. Further, the knowledgeable weren't as mature as they thought that they were, as evidenced by the fact that they were not loving as respect of their knowing. Remember Paul said, the goal of all of our instruction is love. Now you can know a lot, but if you know but don't love, Paul's not going to call you mature. James is not going to call you mature. God's not going to call you mature. And that's what Paul is saying to these Corinthian people. Yeah, you may know a lot. But in the first place, you don't know as much as you think you know. In the second place, even what you know, you're not applying in love. So there's a problem here. And it was dangerous to their spiritual life because they thought more of themselves than they ought to think. They had a higher estimation of their own spiritual maturity than what was consistent with reality. This is a recurring theme throughout the letter. Hence the title of the series that you'll see on the CDs that we have outside Learn, love, live. The Corinthians needed to learn something that they didn't know. They needed to be humble enough to realize that there were things that they didn't know. And then as a result of that learning, they needed to love. And the result of the learning and the loving, then they could live the kind of life that God wants us to live, a life of fulfillment. In chapter 8, Paul stressed the principle that there are times when love trumps liberty, or love trumps license. Yes, there are certain liberties that the Christian enjoys, but if the exercise of those liberties will harm another believer, then out of respect for that believer and out of respect for love, sometimes the liberties that we have need to be set aside out of respect for someone else and their own spiritual growth. The specific liberty that was in view in Corinth at the time Paul wrote 
both first and second Corinthians, was this whole idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And in chapter 8, Paul says, listen, an idol is a non-entity. There really is no big deal about eating something that's been sacrificed to a non-entity. But there are people in Corinth that don't have that knowledge, and he calls them the weaker believer. Interesting, he never calls the more knowledgeable believer in Corinth the stronger believer. Interesting there, because they're not exercising love. That's why they're not the stronger believer. They may know more, but they're not loving more. But he calls the one who doesn't have the knowledge weaker. And that, that believer, in all earnestness, felt like that sacrificing meat or eating meat that was sacrificed to idols would be in some way sinful. They see someone that they look up to, the more knowledgeable believer doing it, thinking that it's a sin and it causes them to sin. Well, if that knowledgeable believer can sin that way, I'll sin that way too. And so Paul says, that's not loving. If somebody misunderstands this, it's time for you to back off. And that's why at the end of it, he says, listen, if, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Now, how many of us can say that? Most of us can't because we value our liberties. We want our freedom. That's what we're all about. We want our freedom. But biblically, there are times when our freedom needs to be set aside. If my freedom is going to hurt somebody else, there's a greater law. And that greater law is love. So he says, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again, that I may not cause my brother to stumble or to fall. That's the conclusion he makes in chapter 8. Even though idols were nothing, that's going to come back to that in chapter 10, but even though idols are nothing, if it's going to cause my brother to stumble, then, then I'm not going to do it. Now, knowing that that runs against the current with a lot of people, most of us don't want to give up our liberties. In chapter 9, then Paul uses himself as an illustration of a person who's given up certain liberties, certain freedoms that he had, certain rights that he had, out of love for, guess who, the Corinthian church. So he uses himself as an example. In his explanation, he subtly includes the knowledgeable believers in Corinth into the weaker category as he explains that when he's an apostle and he's ministering to various people, around the world, the ancient world, he had a right as an apostle, he had a right as a minister of the gospel to receive some sort of financial support from those that he was ministering to. But he didn't exercise that right while he was ministering in Corinth because the implied reason is that the Corinthians couldn't handle it. Paul says, I had every right, he goes through the Old Testament, and there's some New Testament documentation too for that. I had every right, but I didn't exercise that right. In fact, he made tents when he was in Corinth. He worked his tail off in the daytime so he could preach the Word of God at night. And he had no problem with that. He wasn't resentful over it. But he's just using himself as an illustration of one who willingly gave up a liberty or a freedom because he loved the Corinthian believers. The Corinthians couldn't handle him taking financial support from them. So he didn't even ask for it, and he wouldn't accept it. Now in chapter 10, the chapter we begin today, Paul gives a very strong warning to those who think that they're more mature in the Christian faith than they really are. The subject hasn't really changed, the overall context. He's still speaking about the subject of love trumping liberty, but now he issues a serious warning, which is summed up in one of the most well-known verses in 1 Corinthians. You've heard this verse before. It comes in verse 12 of chapter 10. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. In verse, verses 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they read this way. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, 
and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ, or the rock was Messiah. Here what Paul's going to do is illustrate from the Old Testament, from God's people, the Jews, this, a, a group of people who thought that they were more mature in their faith than they really were. Remember, that's the subject of this chapter. Now he's going to introduce the Jews from the Old Testament, the Exodus generation in particular, as a group who thought more of themselves than they ought to think, thought more highly of themselves than what they should have been thinking. Yes, they were the people of God. And yes, they had been the recipients of great blessing. No one can argue that. But in spite of all the advantages that the Exodus generation enjoyed, they still fell short. The blessings that they enjoyed were well known to the Corinthians. Now, we shouldn't take the first phrase there. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. We shouldn't take that phrase to mean that the Corinthian church was composed primarily of Jews that had come to Christ. There was, remember we studied in the introduction, it's a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles. But when we consider Father Abraham's the father of us all, when it comes to faith, he's the example, the prime example from Genesis of one who is saved by grace through faith. He's the example that Paul turns to in Romans chapter 4 when he wants to make the case that we're justified by faith. So in a sense, Father Abraham is the father of the Jew, but he's also our father as well. So I think that's what Paul is saying. Not that all the, uh, the people in Corinthians were Jewish individuals who had come to Christ. But they were the people of God. Blessings were extremely well known to the Corinthians. They were rescued from Egypt. Now that's a big blessing. And if you read through the Psalms, the psalmists return to that blessing over and over and over again to remind the Jews, the people of God in the Old Testament, to remind them of the tremendous blessing that they enjoyed. And usually it was in the context of, listen, you've been blessed incredibly. Now let's get with the program. We have an obligation to live in accordance with our so great salvation. Most of the New Testament is telling us that. By the way, the baptism of Moses that's spoken of here is a dry baptism. Not every time we see the word baptism or identification does it mean the water. In this case, the Jews were the ones that were dry. They were identified with Moses in the dry land. The Egyptians were the ones that got wet. So don't, don't mistake this baptism of Moses for, the, say, the baptism of the New Testament believer. But they were rescued from Egypt. They were nourished with food and water in the desert. Remember the manna and also the water that flowed out of the rock? Every time they needed something, God provided it. And they were also sustained by the rock with a capital R, Yahweh, or Messiah, Jesus. So they had spiritual food and they had physical food and they had God's protection what more could they really want? Well, I don't know. Let me ask you. <laughs> I ask it rhetorically. Because we do a lot of complaining and grumbling just like they did. And we have spiritual food and we have physical food and we have protection from Messiah. So you can see why Paul might bring this up to the Corinthians to get their attention because it gets all of our attention. Then in verses 5 through 11, let's see what they did as a result of the great blessing. Nevertheless, now that's a pretty... Key marker in biblical studies. <laughs> Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as, a, as an example for us. It's going to be said twice in this paragraph. That we should not crave evil things as they also craved, and do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play Verse 8, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 
fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Again, he brings up the example issue in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Twice there, he says, these things were an example for us. The Old Testament is not just some dry, dusty book that needs to be ignored by the New Testament believer. If we're ever going to understand the New Testament, we've got to have a reasonable grasp of the Old Testament. And Paul assumes that they have a reasonable grasp. These are examples for us. The idea is, if his chosen people, the Jews in the Old Testament, were not immune to failure with its consequences, then neither is the church, and neither are individuals within the church. If the Jews could fail and be disciplined, what makes us think, in general, or what makes the Corinthians think, more specifically in context here, that they can get away with failure and not be disciplined? Paul's going to get there. Attention, that gives a roster of failures here. The first one is idolatry, and that makes sense because that's the context that Paul's preaching in in these three chapters. Specifically, the idolatry of the golden calf incident. Verse 7 is actually a quotation from Exodus chapter 32. The second failure in this roster of failures is sexual immorality. And it's most likely a reference to the Israelite sin with the Moabite women, which is recorded in Numbers chapter 25. You'll recall that chapter. They went completely against God's self-disclosure and joined themselves with foreign women, caused all kind of trouble. And the number of dead mentioned in Numbers is actually 24,000. Paul mentions 23,000 here. And there have been numerous attempts by Old Testament and New Testament scholars to synthesize these two figures. And I, I think they can do that. And I'm not going to go into that this morning. It's apart from my subject. But that's the likely referent is Numbers chapter 25. When there was sexual immorality and 23,000 people died just like that. You think God's not serious about his commands? Sometimes we do something, we get away with it, think, well, he must not care. As we've studied previously, we need, to, we need not only to confess a sin, but to repent from that sin and move away from it. These people wouldn't do it. The first failure was idolatry. The second failure was immorality. It's interesting to note that the ancient Jews often considered immorality, sexual immorality and idolatry, to be two sides of the same coin. And an interesting Old Testament study is to go through the Old Testament and find out how many times idolatry is involved and you have sexual immorality in the same sense. Interesting uh, study. And the final failure that Paul mentions in this roster of failures of the Jews of the Exodus generation is the constant grumbling against the very God who rescued them from Egyptian tyranny. The constant complaining to the very one that saved them out of slavery. These folks just didn't get it, Paul's saying. They were expert complainers. Their focus wasn't upon the many blessings that God had given them, the spiritual food, the physical food, and, and the rock, the Messiah. It wasn't upon that. But it was all upon what they didn't have. Ever caught yourself doing that? I have. Instead of being grateful for what I have... I'm upset at what I don't have. 
Paul casts a fairly wide net here. And we complain and we grumble. No, we, not, we might not complain to God. We're, we're above that, aren't we? We would be much too spiritually sophisticated to go to God and say, Why haven't you given me this? Because we know better. Among other things, we know that he holds our life by a very thin thread. My heart beating is courtesy of God. The air that I breathe is courtesy of my life. So I might not do that, but I go around living my life complaining to other people, to anybody that will listen about what I don't have. Thomas Constable at Dallas Seminary used to be the head of the Bible Exposition Department. I think he recently retired. But Dr. Constable's specialty was prayer. And what he used to say was, listen, if you find yourself in a spiritual rut, sit down and thank God for everything you can think of to thank him for. Before you ask him for anything, of course, there needs to be confession perhaps, but, but before you ask him for anything, thank him for everything that you have. And you'll get a whole new perspective on life. You might even try just having a prayer that that's all you do. Set aside some time in the morning or the evening. Now, there should be other prayers, too. I'm not saying that we don't make petition. That's not the point here. But just set aside time and thank you for everything that you've got, from your health to the roof over your head to your family, to things that you don't think about, to your friends, to your church, to the availability of the Word of God and a place to worship and freedom, to live in a country where we do have freedoms that's not a third-world country, I pray you don't have to go visit places that they don't have these things before we'll enjoy them and before we'll consider the blessing. And that's all he's saying is, listen, guys, in the first four verses you have these great blessings, yet the end result is you got into idolatry and you got into immorality and you got into grumbling. That's no accident that Paul brings up these three things when it comes to the Corinthians. Because they lived in a culture that was steeped in idolatry, and as we said way back in the introduction to First and Second Corinthians, idolatry was making its way inside the church, seeping through the cracks in the walls. Well, guess what else was seeping through the cracks in the walls? Sexual immorality. We studied that back in the early part of First Corinthians. They had some things going on in their church that shocked everybody, but they didn't do anything about them. In fact, they seemed to embrace it. So Paul is, in a brilliant way, ministering under the influence of the Holy Spirit, bringing these Old Testament examples in. And if people are listening, they're thinking, you know, Paul, that sounds a lot like us. That sounds a lot like us. So he's gotten their attention at this point. Well, then we come to verse 12, which I believe expresses the central idea of this portion of the chapter. We're only going to go through verse 13 this morning. But verse 12, I think, expresses the central idea of this paragraph. Therefore, now there's an old rule, and it's kind of a camp thing to say now, but when you see a therefore in the scriptures, you need to go back and see what it's there for. It's not just a throw-in word. Based upon what he said in these first 11 verses, now therefore, you had these great blessings, but you didn't do very much with them. Therefore, what should be the application? Because we shouldn't just learn the word, we should apply it. Remember that? I think we all know that. So when you see the therefore in verse 12, Paul is really saying, okay, stand up or sit up, listen and take note. Stop thinking about the line at Luby's, how long it is if he goes over today. Take note real quickly. And I'm going to tell you how the application should be made to these first verses that I've given you, the first 11 verses. Because haven't we all been the recipients of God's great blessing? And haven't we all gotten into things we ought not to get into? And haven't we all grumbled a whole lot more than we ought to based upon the blessings that we have? So therefore, 
Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, in context, in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, and actually 10 is part of that unit, in context, the people that think that they are standing are the knowledgeable believers in Corinth. The, one that he entered, the ones he introduced back in chapter 8, the ones who knew that it wasn't sinful to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol because an idol is a non-entity. It's nothing. Okay, you know that. Remember, he never calls them the strong because they just think that they're standing. They're not really standing. They're in a much weaker position than they think they are. And that's a terrible position to be in no matter what field of life it is, but especially in the spiritual life. If you're a student and you walk into a test and you think you know a whole lot more than you really do, you're going to bomb the test, most likely. If you're a physician and you go into a treatment room and you haven't studied in years and you think you know a whole lot more than you think that you know about the current things that come up in medicine, chances are you're not going to treat that patient as well as that patient should be treated. You're going to miss something. If you're a boxer and you get into the ring with somebody, and you think you're a lot better than you really are, you're going to get pulverized. Way back when, and this was way back when, this was some time ago, 20 plus years ago, I was approached by a fellow that wanted me to spar with a guy, and I won't say his name, but at the time he was the heavyweight kickboxing champion in the state of Texas. He said, hey, listen, he needs a sparring partner. Would you spar with him? And I said, sure. Without thinking... Because my manhood was at stake, I said, sure, I'd be happy to spar. And, you know, what does he want? Well, he wants like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you go one round, this other guy's going to go one round, we go back and forth and back and forth. I said, he's the, now who is this now? He said, he's the heavyweight boxing, kickbo- not boxing, kickboxing champion, state of Texas. Well, I thought I was all that, so I said, okay. I went home and I told my dad, he was a boxer, and so I thought, well, you know, I, I was more into martial arts, I wasn't really into the boxing part, I think I need dad's help, because he was a boxer. I said, listen, that's what I've agreed to do. And he just looked at me and said, are you crazy? You're not a boxer. I said, well, I can handle this. He said, I don't think so. You're going to get hurt, son. This guy's going to give you brain damage. And I said, well, I've already agreed to do it. i got to do it now, Dad. I can't back out. I'd look bad. He said, look bad because you're going to look really bad after he finishes with you. You know, your face is going to be mangled and everything. I said, well, got to do it. He said, okay, sport. And that's what he used to that, that was his phrase for me to, to get my attention. Okay, sport, do what you want to do. Be a, and then he called me a, a word that was, that was equivalent to somebody that wasn't real intelligent at the time. <laughs> a dumb something. I figured out what the last word was. <laughs> Thank the Lord. A few days later, I'm playing a basketball game in Deer Park with some of my friends. We had a Deer Park 6-2 and under basketball league, and we played, and we were good, and I sprained my ankle. Couldn't walk. So I had to call my friend and say, hey, listen, I'd love to be there tomorrow, but I sprained my ankle. I can show it to you. Here it is right here. <laughs> and he, he said, okay. Fast forward a couple years, and I actually saw this man. I walked into a room where he was. I introduced myself to him, and uh, I looked at him. He looked at me, and, and, and again, I won't say his name, but I, I shook hands with him. He said, you're Bruce Bumgarner. I said, yeah. And I said, you're, and he said, yeah. I said, you're heavyweight kickboxing champion. He said, yeah, I regained the, regained the title. And I said, I was supposed to spar you a few years ago. Now, I've got to tell you, this, this is no offense. I'm just saying that he, he looked like a gorilla to me. I mean, there, there, there's, it was nothing but just muscle. There was no neck. It went from like here out to here. And I said, I was supposed to spar you a few years ago. And he said, yeah, I heard about that. And he looked at me, kind of looked me over and said, you know, I'd have killed you. 
I said, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I really pre- appreciate it. So thinking that you're a little tougher than you really are gets you in trouble too. To think, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think can put you in positions where you ought not to be. And if that's true in those mundane pedestrian cosmic realms, boy, isn't it so much more true in the spiritual realm? Things that really, really count. Things that really count in the spiritual realm. We ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We ought not to think that we're more spiritually mature than we really are. Even the Apostle Paul thought he had room to grow. At least by 62, when he writes his letter to the Philippians, he thought he had room to grow. When he writes his final letter to Timothy, he says, listen, have somebody bring me the parchments. He still needed to read and to grow. So these Corinthians who thought that they were all that, because after all, they'd been believers three or four years now. So they thought that they had nothing new to know. And Paul's saying, you got so much more to learn. But even now, you're not applying what you already know. A little humility would go a long way. Humility is something that we like to see in others, but so often we've forgotten the concept ourselves. This is a stern warning, not just for the Corinthians, but for all of us, my friends. No one gets so far along in the spiritual life that they are immune to failure and to discipline from God. No one. No one. And then Paul concludes this warning-centered paragraph, I would call it, with a word of encouragement. And so often the biblical authors did that. They would come down hard on us and then they give us a word of encouragement. And the word of encouragement comes in verse 13 when Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. In the context, and I keep going back to that, but in the context of 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, the specific encouragement is that the knowledgeable Corinthians will be able to handle sensitive situations concerning meat sacrifice to idols and sensitive situations in more general when it comes to love trumping liberty. Paul knew it was a sensitive situation because no one likes somebody from the outside manipulating our lives. So he knew it was tough in the specific context of 1 Corinthians. But in a broader context, this is a most comforting verse in that it assures us that if we ever find ourselves in a particular situation where we're tempted to do evil, there is always a way out. Always. God will not allow us to be placed in a situation either by ourselves and our own poor decisions or by somebody else and their poor decisions where we do not have the resources available to us, spiritual resources, I mean, to overcome the temptation. This does seem to short-circuit the lame excuse that so many of us sometimes offer when we get ourselves in a mess, when we sin. Well, you know, that's just my area of weakness. That's just how I am. That's just me. Sorry, guys. In light of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that excuse just doesn't fly. I don't deny that all of us have areas of strength and weakness. I, I don't deny that at all in our spiritual life. What tempts me may not tempt you. What tempts us at one point in our life may not be tempting to us at another point in our life. But personal areas of weakness 
are not an excuse for failure. So Paul takes that off the table. While the particulars may change from age to age, what tempts one generation will typically tempt another generation. There has been no golden age when it comes to this subject. Murder, violence, adultery, chemical abuse, idolatry, sexual perversion, these things aren't new phenomena. They may be packaged differently depending upon the generation. They may be more public today than maybe they were 40 or 50 years ago. Perversion may be more in your face today, but even a casual study of history will reveal that every generation has its issues with sin. Some just hide it better. So our generation is not experiencing anything particularly unique. We can't use this as an excuse for failure. Well, well, you just don't understand. This is a different generation that we live in. It's not like the 50s. Okay, it's not like the 50s. But was there murder in the 50s? Yeah, there was. Was there adultery in the 50s? Yeah, there was. Was there chemical abuse in the 50s? Yeah, there was. Was there sexual perversion in the 50s? Yeah, there was. That may be expressed differently today. But we can't use it as an excuse that our culture has just gone to, excuse me, hell in a handbasket. We can't use that as, as an excuse for our own failure. Every generation faces temptations and challenges. So there's no excuse for failure here. Paul concludes this paragraph by saying, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. The Corinthians knew what it was like to be tempted by idolatry. Now, we may not call it idolatry anymore, but there's idolatry all over our culture. Idolatry being anything that we place in front of our relationship with God. There's idolatry everywhere. So no temptation has overtaken you as an individual, but such as is common to man. You're not alone. You're not the first person that's ever faced this temptation. Now, I'm not minimizing the temptation or, the, or the, the pain that can go along with some of these things. But I'm just saying, we're not the first people that have ever endured it. But God's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able. He's not going to put you in that position. He's not going to allow anybody else to put you in that position. So if you find yourself tempted, and we all do, Understand that you're not the first person to be in this situation. That God has provided a way out for you. And that he expects you to say no to temptation. That's the expectation. Now, we don't do that with the frequency that we ought to, but that's his expectation. He expects obedience from us. And then when we don't obey, he expects confession from us. And when we confess, he expects repentance from us. That's what he expects. Even though that may not be the norm, that's his expectation. No excuses. No excuses for the Exodus generation. No excuses for the generation in the first century church at Corinth. No excuses for us. Because no temptation has overtaken us, but such as is common to man. But God, in his infinite mercy and his grace, has provided a way out for us. If God will discipline his chosen ones, the Jews, Israel, in the Old Testament, for their failure... He'll surely discipline us, his chosen ones in the New Testament, for our failure. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. <laughs> 